0: dive into the world of cybersecurity and hear firsthand from those that are deep in the fight to protect your data and peace of mind think your network is secure let's check out how secure you really are with this week's chat supply chain cyber attacks i'm joined today with mike davis ciso at alliant group simon milovich president and cto at chasm with ever so patient ritesh agarwal ceo of airgap to chat about the very real challenges on legitimate software updates and the injection of covert malware in large organizations. According to Dark Reading, over 18,000 organizations have possibly been compromised in massive supply chain cyber attacks through nation state attackers used to poison SolarWinds network management software updates to distribute malware. We don't know the full extent yet, but when our government agencies are directly impacted, we know it cannot be a good thing. I'm your host and moderator, Sia Yasu Before we get started, I've got to give a shout out to our sponsor, AirGap, best Defense Against Ransomware. With a zero trust isolation platform, AirGap confines ransomware to a single device. Put an end to threat propagation and protect your infrastructure in minutes, not months. And now, let's enter the battle room. Welcome, guys. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Before we get started, I would like to set the tone a little bit for this conversation. Uh, There are so many areas and industries and markets that we can uh, relate to today's conversation, but I'd like to get some clarity on two areas that's been kind of bothering me, obviously, with some recent news uh, headliners that, you know, has been affecting us. I'd like to take our battleground conversation around government agencies and specifically around that, the impact on supply chain, corporate uh, you know, concerns and issues. So there's the governmental, what is, has happened and what can they do? And then also how does that affect supply chain? It's kind of a big, broad thing, but I just wanna narrow it down and you guys know why I'm going to. So let us just talk about this. So Mike Davis, thank you. Knowing your background within, you know, working with government agencies, you know, how many, how much of the concerns do we have right now around security software and how companies are getting hit?
1: Well, it's always uh, disconcerting on the sl- supply chain risk, especially one that's uh, using a trojanized uh, signed uh, software upgrade that gets that's about as uh, targeted as it, as it can get. Uh, although it's the uh, government entities that were. Act, so, to speak, with their emails, it does apply to all of us, of course. Uh, quite a few people use the solar wind. So, in short, uh, they might have been the pointy end of the spear this time, but I think it, it points to the fact that we need to take uh, supply chain risk management much more seriously than we do. And there are uh, some best practices that go with that. And clearly, when the CISA issued their emergency directive for all federal agencies to stop, that was a, uh, a bell ringer, if you will. But in short on this, I think the government is uh, just the pointy end of the spear, if you will. They're the ones that get the most attention, but it absolutely applies to us all. And it's one of those things that uh, it's a gift that get, keeps on giving, and it, the black hole, if you will, is enormous. In essence, I tell everybody, supply chain risk management applies to everything we got, hardware, software, firmware, you name it. And the fact that these devices and software have thousands of modules, et cetera, there's no way with the computations and permutations you can test it all. You have to go in knowing that you're gonna have supply chain unknown risks. And you gotta do something about that. And what you do is you have a supply chain risk management program that basically addresses those things for your environment.
0: Wow, I see a lot of Ned hot, uh, head nodding going on here. So Simon Miolovic. What is your take on this? Because I see you're agreeing.
2: Very much so. Um, it's, it's a problem that we've been talking about uh, for years, uh, mainly about the fact that uh, if you look at the ratio between the amount of software that is produced by a particular vendor and the amount of dependencies that they're consuming, you're usually looking at about a three-to-one to a four-to-one ratio. So the overwhelming majority of software that's being deployed in government environments uh, are based on open source dependencies that most of the developers and the people who are developing software that's being acquired by the government are not aware of. Um, and, that, and that creates a significant problem, because if you don't understand exactly where that source code is coming from, if you're not doing the source code inspection of the dependencies, uh, then, uh, you know, I use the analogy of you're buying a $10 million house, but you're uh, not able to even look at the basement. So you don't see the plumbing, you don't see the septic, you don't see, the fo- you don't see if there's any cracks in the foundation. Um, so it's significantly problematic if you don't have access to that source code and have the ability to inspect it before you consume it.
0: Okay, so you just mentioned something there, $10 million house. First off, I would like to participate and visit that house as well if you've got access to it. Should you have the desire to give it to me, I'm not going to complain either. Uh, but you've mentioned, okay, so most of uh, business and government uh, environments, networks is a combination of public and private cloud, right? I mean, we are so dependent on public cloud. I don't understand... Um, the exposure we've allowed ourselves to. I always understood it in my days. Everything that's mission critical should always be on your private network. Anything that could be out, like operational basic stuff, should be out in the cloud. But am I wrong? Is this not the case anymore? Has things changed in the last 10 years? Um, Mike, help me understand that.
1: Well, no, you're not wrong. It's just that with work from home and all the other things that we have to deal with now, a large part of the user base and what we're doing, not the systemic support underneath, is uh, is shifting to the cloud, it's just easier. And so uh, that's actually a pretty good point because you might want to pull a thread a little bit on what supply chain risk management means in the cloud, right, because you're relying on that provider to provide a certain assurance level for that infrastructure. And they generally do, that's their business, right? So I recommend everybody that uses a provider, for example, uh, uh, make sure that they're at least FedRAMP high, most of the major providers are, and there's a program called CIS Star. It goes in and assesses your cloud provider. So actually, you can do a self-assessment. But fundamentally, if you're going when you use the cloud, not if when you use the cloud, be it for user access and or business operations, that you uh, do a risk assessment uh, at the bare minimum.
0: Risk assessment. Okay. So, Ritesh. I know uh, with your background as well, and I know I'm sorry to bring you in a little bit later here, but Ritesh is joining to help me out here to make sure I don't, you know, fool uh, look foolish, but Ritesh, so risk assessment, as far as do you see enough uh, businesses doing their due diligence to do that risk assessment before they dive in and say, no, I need, I need access to this app or uh, uh, data.
3: I'd be lying if I said uh, all of them are doing proper analysis <laughs> in uh, <with> certain <laughs> initiatives, yeah. but I, I, I see the, I have empathy towards the typical CIO and CISO in the organization that is often under pressure to uh, to get some outcome. And that outcome may be, we need to move everything to public cloud by tomorrow morning, or that outcome may be sometimes unreasonable as it is, is we need to launch this new application or new, new initiative within a shorter amount of time with least amount of resources. And of course, then you end up taking some shortcuts. The other issues that I see, of course, lack of talent is definitely a big problem. Uh, second, uh, or the third issue that I can actually count on is we are increasing at a fundamental level, the digital footprint at a faster pace than we are producing security engineers. So what you're doing is you're generating more, you're digitizing more and more assets, whether it's physical assets, like in your home, you have toaster oven, you have probably refrigerator digitized. your car is digitized now, and slowly and slowly you're seeing everything else being digitized. I think the rate of digitization is outpacing the rate of security, awareness, and training. And that to me is the fundamental problem here.
0: Ooh, okay. You, You hit something that hurts me a little bit because I am, gentlemen, your end user from hell. I will double click everything. I will say, oh wait, if you sent it, it's therefore it's real. Um, so <laughs> knowing that I am that weakest link, Simon then, um, where do you see then with something like, uh, even something like SolarWinds, okay? Where they do the orchestration and they've got hacked into. I mean, what is the implication of, of these types of attacks? Because it feels like they're attacking the providers, the security providers now, and not just the weakness of the the end user.
2: Right. We're still waiting uh, for the dust to settle uh, on the analysis of what exactly happened uh, with SolarWinds. But uh, at the end of the day, my concern, uh, particularly with what we've seen there, is not necessarily the attack on the provider, but it's more the attack of the software chain, uh, where somebody has the capacity to actually go in and add arbitrary code to a particular code base. Uh, and that, and that is considerably frightening. Uh, it's something that again is, is security professionals have been talking about for a number of years. Uh, in in uh, having a lot of public repositories, um, you know some classic examples of like a GitHub and a Bitbucket. Um, the the making sure that people don't have access to that, and making sure that there are preconditions for making sure that. If anyone is to check in any code, it's been reviewed, uh, it's been analyzed and it's been uh, it's been checked to make sure that if I'm going to actually approve that check-in of code, that something, someone, some group of people have looked into it to make sure that the code actually functionally does what it's supposed to do and it doesn't compromise or increase the threat profile. So it's, it's far more lower level um, in the fact that it's much harder for people to be able to find those particular things and we're going to start becoming more and more dependent on automation and tooling to be able to help us with that. Because like what was said before, um, there's a significant gap in you know over 110 million lines of code being produced every year. And yet having a shortfall of over 4 million security professionals necessary to analyze and look at that code. Um, we're, we're no longer going to be able to be dependent on humans to do that. So we're going to find ourselves more in a position where we're going to have to complement the lack of, of security professionals with the proper tooling to be able to inspect that source code.
0: So with that, okay. So if we're looking at automation because of the complexity, right? In order to be able to address these these you know hacking uh, and for lack of a better term, these uh, these uh, att- the attempts, if you will, are we saying then that every single provider of software? Particularly, we're talking about supply chain management in this context. They have to do additional rounds of testing that they didn't initially do before. Why hasn't this been in place from the get-go, Mike? Would you like to answer that one?
1: Well, oh, sure. The easy answer is yes. One of the things we want to do when we do a supply chain risk management program is buy from uh, buy from known, buy known cert- certified products. Right. There's an expectation of that that the uh, provider. Of the modules and the other elements that go with that particular program, have some level of due diligence. It's the same thing with Android and um, Apple uh, apps, right? Android doesn't have a whole lot of barrier to entry. Apple tests and uh, and puts a lot more structure on any app that comes in there. That's kind of what I think people expect. So yes, uh, from a buying a certified product or using a certified uh, provider, there's an expectation that that. A due diligence level of testing. That said, as we said before, and Simon mentioned it, it's just th- these devices are so complex that you can't fully test them. They're gonna uh, do as best they can, and then you're gonna get what they what they provide. But there's always going to be a level of unknown risks embedded in the software chain devices that we have. And I'm a firm believer of smart monitoring and a. Uh, and a supply chain risk process that you do all that you can, including vetting products, testing them and things like that. But from a consumer perspective, I would expect the manufacturers to do more. Maybe they're doing a little, but I think this might be a wake up call that the rest of us are expecting them to do more.
3: See, I would say at a foundational level, first of all, I agree with Mike completely, but at a foundational level, everything boils down to dollar and time. When it comes to business especially, and we all know security costs more dollar and more time. So there is always that balance that the vendors are trying to strike out is how much do I sell this product for and how much time and how much dollars it's gonna cost me to get this product out of the door. And to Mike's point about Apple versus uh, Android and other devices, Apple generally has more dollars uh, to spare because they, they are able to command premium in the market. while their competitors may not be in that position So their recourse is to then take uh, action, which are somewhat detrimental to security, I think. Mm -hmm. And that's what uh, ends up happening eventually.
2: Oh, that's such a valid point. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And even to to add a little bit to it, um, we'll talk about what I classify as the dark con. Um, One of the challenges that we have in industry is the fact that um, developers, especially intellectual property producers as developers, are deified within organizations. Um, So what winds up happening is that there's a lack of accountability when something is systemically wrong, a systemic bad coding practice or vulnerabilities found in the code system because of the fact that they are intellectual property producers and they're classified as significant revenue generators for an, an organization. Um, so, what winds up happening is that there's a breakdown in accountability. So, developers don't feel like they are, uh, there's no, they're not penalized for making those type of systemic challenge uh, mistakes over and over again, right? And that's one of the things that has to shift within industry is that there has to be levels of accountability even for intellectual property producers in order for this to change, in order for the culture to change around prioritizing security because it's the revenue generation. It's the getting a piece of software out the door to generate revenue that becomes the priority to an industry company.
0: Wow. So, okay, you guys are giving me a lot of information here. And so I guess maybe, let me take a step back here. Let me just tie this back. Can you clarify for me how the types of attacks um, and IOCs different from, you know, even five, ten years ago, to today, because I think I'm a little confused when you you're talking about these, you know, mobile, you know, attacks, you know, depending on you know, Apple and Android. How has that evolved um, from a from an attack perspective? So, um, let me just throw a dart here, and I just threw it at Mike. How has it evolved and changed?
1: Well, we already mentioned several times the effects that. Uh- the bad guys are the top 20, 30 APT groups, you name it. They're all starting to use AI, ML automation and things like that to improve their, uh, their malware performance. But in this particular case, uh, it was really less of a malware issue, even though there was a signed uh, upgrade, but they also leveraged stolen credentials and social uh, engineering. Well, in essence, uh, they've gotten better. Uh, clearly they've got they, the bad actors have gotten better. They share techniques, et cetera. So uh, my position is tough to chase threats which morph and get more sophisticated. It's better to have a risk-based security strategy kind of embeds that for the, the, the group. but I guess back to your quick one as far as the IOCs and the TTPs, they they're a business. They're out to make a profit. so they, they, the bad guys, share information. They've got R and D. They've got all that uh, those capabilities to improve their product, and yeah. what we're seeing. And so now they've got a their their asymmetrical advantage continues to grow while we catch up. Yeah, there, there's been a
2: a, a tectonic shift um, in, in in criminal organizations shifting from uh, theft and drugs to actual cybersecurity um, because it is classified as one of the most uh, Tectonic shifts in in uh, uh, financial uh, markets with regards to to criminality. So we have to start looking at that very seriously. Um, it's not only the state-sponsored agencies that are doing it. Uh, it's it's criminal enterprises and criminal organizations that are looking to uh, shift the balance of, of financial financial profits and gains. Um, but in terms of the tactics, uh, what what's really changed is that we were so used to uh, you know software. Uh, running or lasting a year, two years, maybe three years in operational readiness and capabilities, but now with microservices and containerized applications in the cloud, um, software is changing an alarming pace where, for example, versions of, uh, of software are being released every four to six weeks. Um, So the ability to be able to keep up with that and the ability to to leverage human beings is almost impossible um, when code is changing that rapidly, being exponentially increased in in sort of the numbers of of lines of code uh, and in in the visibility towards uh, the same tactics that we use to uh, prevent threats are the same tactics that are being used by these criminal organizations to find threats. So, you know, what used to be uh, a simple maybe two or three targets back in the day uh, is quite literally what is the entire threat landscape and what is the easiest way in. In the case of SolarWinds, in this particular case, uh, I've already heard rumblings that uh, admin passwords of SolarWinds123. And it's those kinds of things that wind up becoming significant threats, even though you may not... uh, I'll be looking at. You know, we know that 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 passwords, weak passwords, have always been a critical infrastructure threat. Uh, but finding those things are becoming significantly easier because of the tooling that's available.
0: Uh, you're making me cry here a little bit. Then, so can can we just talk about zero trust? And so, how will zero trust play? Uh, you know, a part of this in future attacks. You know, we hear zero trust all the time. So. Let's talk about it. Um,
3: yeah, I'd love to talk about it, Sia. You know, uh,
0: yeah. this, I, I'd imagine so. so. <laughs>
3: <laughs> this is my favorite topic of all the topics, but look, and, and I just don't mean it. I founded the company, which is based on zero trust principles, essentially. That's where AirGap actually started. The whole idea of zero trust to explain it to uh, people in layman terms is trust, but verify. Essentially, assume that everybody's infected everybody's an adversary, and then act sort of in a reverse manner from there onwards. So if you are an enterprise with 5,000 endpoints that are inside your organization, assume that they're all infected. What would happen next? I talk to many, many security professionals, and they always think about defending the first victim, defending the perimeter, defending the uh, attack from getting into the organization and they almost always ignore the fact that what would happen if the attack did make it into your organization um, and that's where air gap starts so coming back to the zero trust notion the i i think that's the only way you can solve this cybersecurity problem is to start assuming everybody's infected and work backwards and then you'll have a solution that uh, that will protect you
0: it sounds so incredibly pessimistic guys but it absolutely makes sense in this digital age that we're in. So if you guys uh, have that magic ball and you can wave it, what do you think is potentially the next big, I don't want to call it the next big thing, but what is the next thing on the horizon that we need to be looking out for? Mike?
1: Well, not to pander to the topic at hand, but this is so systemic, like Simon said, that uh, uh, it's almost intractable. So uh, I, I would say more of that uh, we always worry about third-party risk management and the vendors and things we do like that. But uh, if I was to put on my CISO hat as well, I would say uh, I'm worried about privacy and privacy compliance as we go forward. Uh, that's That's got a little, uh, let's face it, uh, devices, IoT, everything has to do with uh, some sort of information that might be privacy. So I'll have to put my privacy compliance hat on. Privacy's not dead, we still have to protect it, but from a security perspective, uh, if I jump past SCRM, then uh, I land in the privacy compliance area, I think.
0: Okay, and Simon? Uh,
1: I, I think we're gonna start seeing
2: uh, more of a shift away uh, from the uh, the public cloud infrastructure. I think we're gonna actually see a, a shift back to more of a hybrid model. Um, where uh, generally consumable applications will be used in in public cloud type of environments, but the vast majority of the sensitive data, as uh, as well as uh, key intellectual property, will wind up becoming more of an on premise situation, mainly because of the fact, like I had talked about the basement analogy before. If you don't if you don't know your basement, you don't really know what your house stands on. Um, and if you were to ask any public cloud infrastructure provider today, give me all of your documentation about your operating systems, your applications, and everything that are required to actually run the infrastructure of your cloud, um, you'll never hear back, right? So the lack of visibility, um, and also I see this, this more of a, an industry ripple uh, moving away from a, this, this zero-trust concept to what we call the trust-nothing concept, where, in fact, it's not trust but verify, it's don't trust and verify. Um, so making sure that you're doing source code inspection of dependencies of every application, including the vendors' uh, products that you're consuming uh, and the native applications that you're building. So there, we we have to move towards an environment where not only do we think that something is compromised, but we also have to start thinking about the fact that something might have been ingested in the source code we're consuming.
0: Wow, Ritesh, I know you I know you have a future thing, but go ahead, chip in.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Look. Um, my views are always simplistic, uh, so you have, to, uh, you have to pardon me on that one. My belief is digitization is going to continue to grow at a faster pace than ever before. And that means it's going to expose more security vulnerabilities, and those who would pay attention and actually invest in security are going to survive, and everybody else is going to perish. This is just the law of the jungle at the moment. Uh, so if you want to be surviving for the longer run, you have to invest in security as much as you're investing in digitizing your assets uh, because disproportionate, disproportionate investment is gonna be the, the reason you may not survive for the long term.
0: Oh,
2: are Darwinism. <laughs> <laughs> so it's gonna it, be. Yeah?
0: It is, absolutely. So on that note, gentlemen, I just wanna say thank you very much. It's been very enlightening. I wanna make this a quick and uh, you know fun conversation. Mike Davis, Simon Mijolovic, and Ritesh Agrawal, thank you so much for joining us. And you guys, thank you so much. Let's go ahead and wrap that up for another episode of the Ransomware Battleground. Thank
2: Thanks. you. Thank you.